it, it took them five seconds to forgive each other and hug, but it took me several weeks to even forget about. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Assyrian Podcast. My name is Rhoda and I'm so excited to be joining Stephen Adessa as a co-host. I'll be introducing you to various Assyrians in the metro Detroit area and across the state of Michigan. And I'm just really thrilled to be able to connect with these folks and bring you their stories about their life, work, talents, and hearts. This week, you'll hear from Nathan Kaleshu, a Michigan resident who at the age of 31 is the founder of KEYS, which stands for Kaleshu Empowerment of Young Scholars. Nathan and his family opened KEYS Grace Academy in Madison Heights, Michigan in 2015. And the school is special because in addition to core subjects, it offers Assyrian language classes and it incorporates various cultural components in its classrooms. This is the only K through 12 school of its kind in the United States. And you'll hear Nathan talk about the future plans for Keys in terms of expansion across Michigan, as well as other states. But before we get into this week's episode, I wanna remind you that if you like what you're hearing on the Assyrian Podcast, let us know by emailing us at assyrianpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on social media. And most importantly, we ask that you subscribe and review the podcast. You can visit us on our website, www.assyrianpodcast.com, and follow the links to subscribe using an iPhone or an Android. Also remember to share this episode with your friends and help them subscribe as well. Thank you for being a part of our worldwide community of Assyrian Podcast listeners. Finally, I'd like to give a shout out and a thank you to our sponsor, John Oshana from HomeSmart. Whether you're thinking about purchasing or selling your home either in Arizona or California, contact John Oshana Real Estate Professional at 209-968-9519 on Facebook at John Oshana Realtor or at John.Oshana on Instagram. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Nathan Kaleshu. talking about you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you grew up and all that good stuff uh boring story (laughs) uh i'm 31 i i was born just a couple miles down from here in royal oak i lived in grand blank for a little bit which is uh, a suburb of flint and some of the listeners will, will recognize flint for some some bad things but it's it's the site I believe of the first Assyrian church in the mm-hmm. United States. Um, so my my mom's side still lives there. I have a uh, sister brother, of course, and very close to my parents as well. And I married my sweetheart a couple of years ago, and uh, she's the best nurse I know. And, uh, I make sure that people know that. Um, so yeah, that's about it. I went to Catholic school my entire life. Mm-hmm. I went to college at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I'm a huge Michigan fan. Go blue. I cry when we, whenever we lose. <laughs> Don't talk to me when we lose. But uh, yeah, that's about it. And you studied political science? Michigan is known for their political science program. And I was planning on going to law school. Hmm. And that's sort of what you do before law school. Sure. Is it's what you take. There's no pre-law or anything like that. So um, yeah, political science was, was what I studied. And uh, I had some really good professors. We had especially some visiting professors from around the world. So 
I was blessed with the education yeah. there. Your sister is a lawyer though, right? She, she's, she works out of our buildings. She runs a legal aid clinic. Mm-hmm. It's called CODE. It stands for counseling, uh, some, other, some other things. But I know that she wanted to make it Med- uh, or Middle Eastern themed, okay. Mesopotamian themed. So she went with like Hammurabi code. Type. Um, and then she's currently serving as co-counsel on uh, the Iraqi national case that's affected hundreds of community members. How did you go from a political science major to somebody who now has schools and yeah. you know where did that come from yeah um, so that dream? so uh my, my mom and dad opened up adult education centers in detroit starting in 1992 okay. it was under the banner ACOS arab american chaldean community outreach services and the the program was mainly geared towards the Seven Mile area, which was commonly known as Chaldean Town. Mm-hmm. Still known as Chaldean Town. If you open up Google Maps, I just found this out like last week. Yeah. I was on Google Maps and I saw Chaldean Town, Seven Mile, and I said, "That's strange because I don't think you there's there's an even uh, there's a member of the community that mm-hmm. still lives there." Um, but it was mainly geared towards the the elderly community. Um, taught them English. Uh, we did citizenship training. We did computers, adult basic ed, GED, and it evolved into the largest adult education provider in the state. So at its peak, they had about 1,600 participants, 1,600 adults. Yeah. Um, And Detroit Public Schools was going through some issues, some upheaval. And uh, in 2007, they got rid of all their privatized programs. In 2008, I was approached by our former consultant, our educational consultant, who said that there was an opportunity with the local school district if, if I wanted to operate alternative education schools. So in Michigan, alternative education schools are mainly high school completion centers, and it mainly serves at-risk students. So I didn't really think much of it. I was sitting at, at my dad's banquet hall in Southfield, it was, I want to say it was March or April of 2008. And a family came in to see him. He had just stepped out. And it was a, a recent refugee family. They had just come from Iraq. They were one of the first to get here. Uh, the boy's name was Silver. And I, I remember and I remember that he was missing an I in his name. So it was S-L-V-E-R. And he came with his mom and his aunt. His dad had died in Iraq. Uh, I, can't, I can't recall if he was killed or... I know that it was something tragic. They came seeking help and, and advocacy on what, what to do because he had just gotten kicked out of his high school. Mm-hmm. So when we... I sat down with him and it was during the day. So there was no one there. It was, it's a banquet hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, other than the weekends and some things that go on at night, there's nothing really going on in the hall. And we sat down and... And I asked him why he got kicked out of school. And he said, because they said I was not going to graduate on time. So it was a matter of his, his grades. It was mm-hmm. a matter of his credits. In Michigan, a lot of times at high schools, once they evaluate students after sophomore year, if they don't think that the kids are capable of getting enough credits by senior year, they will send them to their alternative schools. And so he said he tried going to the alternative school, but he was being forced into class or being requested to sit in class with kids who were kicked out for drugs, kids who were kicked mm-hmm. out for fighting. He was attending class with uh, some, some pregnant young, young women or, or 
basically teenagers. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was just, it wasn't a good educational environment for him. And so it dawned on me then that there was this group of young members of our community who started to resettle into this area, the Metro Detroit area, who were going to have the same struggles and obstacles as Silver. Mm -hmm. And so I, I called the consultant and I said, I think I do wanna, I think I do wanna pursue that, that gig with, the, with, with that local school district and this is how I wanna do it. And so by April, we had a meeting with the local school district. By June, we received approval, a resolution from their board. We started registering students towards the end of June in July and uh, August, and we were able to register 121 kids in about a two and a half month period. I didn't know was, we were gonna register that many. Mm -hmm. So at this point I started to panic because I didn't know where to put them. So uh, I, I called my dad and I said, dad, we need to start making phone calls. We need to find out who has a, an appropriate site for us to use somewhere on the east side. Mm -hmm. The east side is like the Warren and uh, Sterling Heights area. And so, we we went to several different places. We went to uh, St. Mary. They had the the lower level. We met with them. We went over to uh, St. George, uh, and Shelby. They had a separate building. Several different places, but it didn't work out with any of them. We went to Bella or Bellagio, and, and that's I, a banquet hall. It's a right? banquet hall. Yeah, it's a banquet hall. We said, well, what if we operate out of this banquet hall? You guys don't have anything going on Monday through Fridays during the day. Mm -hmm. We will be responsible for putting up, you know, makeshift classrooms mm -hmm. and putting them, taking them down. How would you feel about that? And they were okay with it. So we operated at this banquet hall for just under four months. And then we were able to secure a former bank site in, in, on 15 in Dequinder. And we remodeled it. And we operated from there for a number of years until until now. Yeah. So yeah. right now you're at a, a site that used to be a school. So yeah. it was already a school and it had classrooms. And when you acquired this site, what was your vision for what you wanted it to look like yeah. in terms of representing the community and the values and the things that you wanted to teach the students? Yeah. So... So previously what we operated were alternative schools. Mm -hmm. And then it was always our goal to to operate charter schools mm -hmm. just because there's more independence, there's mm -hmm. more flexibility, there's more autonomy. And so there was a lot of synergy between us and the Madison School District. Mm -hmm. And typically in Michigan, local school districts don't, they're not fond of charter schools. Mm -hmm. But their superintendent was different, their school district was different. And they were moving out of a building, and they didn't want that building to sit vacant. So in May of 2015, we met with Madison, and we, we figured out a way for us to come in and operate a charter uh, out of this building. And it was, it, it was also a goal of ours to make sure that we preserved cultural component or that we added a cultural component to the, the academics of the program. Mm -hmm. So with that comes the character of the building. Mm -hmm. How do you want your building to look? And so we wanted to make sure that we applied several Mesopotamian themed 
uh, whether it be art or uh, relics or what have you, throughout the building. Mm -hmm. We were fortunate to get some pieces from some free pieces, and what we've done so what we've done since then is we just have kids making things. We have mm -hmm. our classes making things, and if they're really nice, we keep them up for a while. <laughs> And if they're casa nice, we, you know, we keep them up for a little bit and yeah. send them home. So. so you have opened, this school has been open since 2015 as a charter. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the differences between charter schools and public schools and private schools. We have yeah. a lot of listeners who are not from the States. And mm -hmm. even for those who are, I think it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on the differences between those three sure. types of schools. The charters are, they call them public school academies in, in Michigan. They're, they're publicly funded. They're operated with a, they're operated under a nonprofit board. Mm -hmm. The difference with charters is that the nonprofit board often subcontracts the, the educational management to a organization, mm -hmm. to another organization which is where my organization comes in, which okay. the Colossal Empowerment of Young Scholars, which stands for KEYS, mm -hmm. which prefaces KEYS Grace Academy right. and our future schools as well. Charters get a bad rap sometimes, mm -hmm. especially now, and especially whenever there is heightened political tension. Mm -hmm. But it was always a more progressive style of education because it offered and still offers families choices in particular uh, in areas where there are struggling schools. Mm -hmm. So in Michigan, for example, about 10% of school-aged children attend charters, and several of those schools are in inner cities like Detroit, Saginaw, Pontiac, uh, cities that had difficulties within the school district, whether it be academic difficulties or whether it be financial instability. And so charters were a different option for families. Okay. We provide the same type of services as any other school. In fact, we provide several uh, additional services, several wraparound services. And so those are the common differences. Private schools are completely different. Private mm -hmm. schools uh, require um, tuition. They're tuition-based. So charters are tuition-free. Mm -hmm. Private schools obviously are not. For the most part, some people do think that charters, because they act sometimes privately or they're managed by private companies or organizations, that they're private schools, which is not true. Right. They're, uh, they're, they're public schools and um, they're just a little more, they're run a little bit more independently. I worked at a uh, charter school in San Francisco. Okay. Um, so that's my only kind of reference for what a charter school is and... Uh, what I remember when I worked at the school was that there were things, uh, there were programs offered to the students that other pub, uh, public schools that I worked at didn't have. So yeah. they had art classes and theater and music and things like that. A lot of arts, mm -hmm. uh, there was an emphasis on that, whereas public schools didn't have necessarily the funding to have those programs for the students. So do you have those programs for students here in addition to math and science and English? Yeah, in addition to the core subjects, we have an art and music program. Mm -hmm. I guess the biggest component here is that we, we have a SUDETH instruction mm -hmm. for our students as well. 
which is something that I don't think you'll see at any other school. Right. Um, and this is for all of your students, regardless of whether or not they're Assyrian. Yeah. Well, so what we did, well, we, we started with all of our students. Okay. But we quickly realized that it was too difficult for the middle school kids mm. to uh, gain enough in that short period of time. So what we're doing is we're starting now with elementary. We're working on a complete curriculum that should be done in about six months that'll allow us to add a grade moving forward. Mm. So our current fifth graders who, who receive the instruction will receive it next year as sixth graders and then so on. Okay. So and we've noticed that it's been more beneficial that way, sure. especially because younger kids, they are able to pick up different languages, okay. learn different languages okay. far with far greater efficiency mm -hmm. than, than older kids. And they learn to read and write? Yeah. Or do they learn conversational? Yeah, Syrian? well, the conversation right now, like the fourth and fifth graders are learning the conversational okay. pieces. We, we also implement a lot of cultural pieces to it. Mm -hmm. So all the classrooms, now this is throughout the schools, are required to have anywhere between two and three weeks of our history and our, and our culture and, and customs. Um, and then we have events throughout the year that we where, where we celebrate, where we dress up and, and, and fun stuff like that. So the kids love it. The kids like it a lot. And every time I have visitors from the community, I always walk them into a classroom and I'll say, hey, I bet you this kid here knows the alphabet better than you do. <laughs> Uh, and so, and I'm usually right too, but they're surprised to see sure. children outside of the community speaking the language. Yeah. And it's, so it's always fun to see the facial expressions and, and reactions to that. Yeah. Um, do they get to learn any dances? Uh, well, so some students try to, some of the, the more polished dancers <laughs> in the community, they try to teach them, but, uh, we don't spend a lot of time on the dancing sure. on the dancing part. <laughs> Maybe that'll be one of our advanced courses is how to, can you, you won't be able to graduate, let's say, unless, <laughs> unless you can do by gear. Yeah, that, <laughs> that, that sounds good. <laughs> well, let's talk about the students. How many students do you have right now at the elementary school and how many at the middle school? Sure, just under 500 total Okay. Um, at our sites and about uh, 20 of those are, are pre-K, okay. pre-K students. And then we have uh, 260 kids at the high school as well. So in total, it's just under 800 students that we service from pre-K to 12th grade. And what is the capacity in terms of, you know, how many students could you have? At yeah, I, it's, you know, I, I probably, we're probably near capacity. Mm -hmm. we've, we've moved our middle school to another building, mm -hmm. which has allowed us to increase our enrollment at mm -hmm. the elementary level. But I don't think we could enroll more than 30, 40 kids. Mm -hmm at the site over here okay. yeah what percentage of your students are assyrian and what percentage are non-assyrian uh, about 60 just under 60 percent okay. are assyrian uh our next biggest demographic are uh, syrians okay. so um in 2015-16 we saw a huge uptick mm -hmm. uh, of syrian refugees into the michigan area and several of them were resettled into detroit mm -hmm. so Many of them decided to attend school here. We provide transportation, door-to-door -door transportation for every single one of our uh, students. And so that is a, a service that's very crucial to them. Mm -hmm. uh, when you have a, a mom and dad who are either struggling for work or 
struggling to, to take classes or learn English, it helps that they don't have to worry about one more barrier, which is how do I get a driver's license? How do I buy a car or lease a car? And how do I take my kids to school every day? So um, that's our, our next biggest uh, demographic. Then we have several students from Northern Africa okay. as well. But 71% of our kids are, are refugees. Okay. Yeah. And it's interesting that you started the school with this one kid who was from the community yeah. and a refugee, but now the refugee population of the school is not just limited to our own community right. um, because we have so many commonalities with other people. Uh, yeah, out of the 121 students that I registered that first mm-hmm. year, 118 were from our community. Wow. Uh, well, I don't the percent. So what's that like? Something sure. 99 point yeah. some percent. Uh, but yeah, right now it's like 57, 58 percent. And are the students from around this area in Madison Heights or do you provide transportation anywhere they might be? The students come from 25 different school districts. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we pick up, uh, we have a pretty large radius that we pick up from. Let's talk about the funding. Um, I saw this information on your website too. And I just wanted to talk about the funding and where it comes from. Does it come from the government? Is yeah, that state how it funded. works? Yeah, okay. it's state funded. So the way it works is that every student has a foundational allowance that's attached mm-hmm. to him or her. Okay. Um, so in Michigan, charters receive the lowest amount of mm-hmm. per pupil funding. Right now it's $7,631. Is that for the school year? Yeah, so, okay. so each child the state provides $7,631 for each child for the year. Okay. And then you know, there, are diff- there are other sources of revenue as well. There's federal sources. Okay. Um, so that's where you get your Title I, Title II, Title mm-hmm. III. And the state provides some additional sources as well, in particular for at-risk students. So a lot of our students are considered at risk because they meet the criteria, which normally is... Uh, or at least for us, is that they're ELLs, English mm-hmm. language learners, and that they're economically disadvantaged. So all the students obviously uh, come with that, and uh, it's, it's tuition-free. So the, the money comes from, from the government. Is that the money that is spent on payroll for teachers and uh, people who work for the school, but also things that go directly to students? Yeah, yeah. So the way it's broken down is normally it's broken down by instruction so there's like core instructional Mm -hmm. there's direct non-instructional so core instructional would be like your certified teachers and then your direct non-instructional would be stuff like medical Mm -hmm. uh, counseling behavioral health Mm -hmm. um, community services things like that Mm -hmm. and then you'll have your direct instructional which are things like school consulting, stuff that ben- stuff that ben- directly benefits a student but might not be coming from the teacher. Sure. Uh, so like your support staff, mm-hmm. we call them paraprofessionals mm-hmm. and, and they're like teacher aides. Right. But uh, so it's broken down that way. One of the biggest chunks of our funding goes to our transportation just because of how extensive it is. The door-to-door transportation is something that we really pride ourselves on. That's why if you step outside and go to our parking lot, you'll see a lot of 30 passenger buses Mm -hmm. as opposed to the big 70 passenger buses because we have to be able to fit into some some pretty narrow roads. (laughs) So that's a a significant chunk. But yeah, for the most part, 
the overwhelming majority of the uh, of the funds go towards the students. We're sitting in a library right mm-hmm. now. This will be considered like your maintenance. Mm-hmm. But this benefits the students. It's a really obviously. nice library. Yeah, we I like to chill in here. <laughs> yeah, I like to chill in here. I for those who are listening, there's a little treehouse looking yeah um structure that has a really fuzzy blanket inside. It makes me want to pick up one of these books and go in there and start reading. Yeah, we call it our library lounge. Kids yeah. don't. Kids never want to leave here. I'm sure. Um, but sometimes I'd be like, hey, time to go. Time to go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, this is also this also became our makeshift legal center during the deportation mm-hmm. crisis. So there was mm-hmm. hundreds of people that walked in and out of here during that week of June 11th. Yeah, yeah, that, which is anniversary is coming up. Yeah. yeah, you talked about the different events that you hold. Do you celebrate the Assyrian New Year? Yeah, um, that's our favorite day. Okay, <laughs> what? Tell me. I don't know if you saw a picture of me. I look pretty fly in my stuff. <laughs> Tell me what that day is like at Keys Grace. That day is a, is the most fun day of the year just because kids are they're very happy to come dressed up. Uh-huh. And and so we've we've made it more open of a day. Mm-hmm. The first year we did it was strictly, you know, come up bring your Assyrian stuff. Mm-hmm. The second year was more, well look, we have a lot of kids that are 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 just they're not Assyrian. They're very proud of their culture. And their their cultures are rich. They're mm-hmm. rich cultures. And so it became Culture Day. But obviously, with we maintained our theme as well. And so kids come wearing a lot of cool, cool things. My, my Sudeth instructors have a bunch of extra clothing as okay. well. So they dressed up a lot of the girls, uh, which was really cool to see. We bring in food from home. We have our Mr. and Mrs. Hammurabi contest, okay. which is an annual middle school competition, testing you know your knowledge of of uh, Mesopotamia, the Babylon Babylonian and Assyrian empires and and dynasties. One year or two years, we did the Epic of Gilgamesh, the kindergartners of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was the coolest, like cutest thing in the world. Kindergartners, yeah, that? that's yeah. amazing. It was the cutest thing in the world, and then that we usually end the day with dance. I think. It might be extra special because it it usually falls on the last Friday before a week break. I love that day. The first year we did it, we actually had uh, one of the local news stations came out here and broadcast it. And Congressman Levin came out here that same day. was like, what is going on over here? He thought he was just going to meet some Assyrian refugee students and and Syrian refugee students. And we were like, no, dude, like (laughs) this is our new year. You know, you have to some, celebrate with us. Have some food, and yeah, so we had a good time. Nice. That yeah. sounds like a really fun day. Yeah. I read somewhere about a community garden. Is yeah. that still a part of the school? Yeah. So Dylan, my brother, is the project manager okay. for our sites. Um, so this library, for example, was designed by him. Okay. Um, and he also the the garden is his baby. Uh, so he was able to secure a grant from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Mm-hmm. This was back in the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. We they came out and they visited. We opened a greenhouse. He'll be able to tell you like the amount of crops and stuff. He knows that uh-huh. he knows all that nerdy botanist stuff. <laughs> but basically, what it is is the kids plant sometime now. Usually, right. it's been cold. You know, the, sure. with the crazy weather here, it's it's been colder for longer. And then usually by the time. We let out for school. Their their crops have fully grown. They can take mm-hmm. some home. 
Our summer school program, our boys club and girls club is responsible for picking fruits and veggies and distributing them to the to the neighbors. So it's a really cool program. It combines botany and community service. And it's also very, very therapeutic. When the kids are planting, they are they enjoy it. And uh, there's just something about Middle Eastern people and gardens. Gardening. Yeah. Oh, you talked about community service. Um, how do you see the school fitting in into this larger community in Madison Heights? And what are some of the responses you have received from people in the community about the school, the cultural component of the school, and just the students and the atmosphere in general? Madison is a really... It's a blue collar type of city. Mm-hmm. The people here are usually, they're, typically they're people that have lived here for several years. Mm-hmm. There were several people in the area that were not really welcoming at first, but once they saw what we did to the building, once we saw what we did outside the building, once they saw the type of services that we provide, the students that we, the students that we service, it quickly changed. And so we couldn't be happier with our neighbors. They're, they're, great people. Several of them help out at the garden mm-hmm. or in the garden. The entire Madison community has just been very welcoming with us. It's A lot of it has to do with just not knowing who these people are. And mm-hmm. once you do meet these people, your opinion on them changes. It's not different than other, other communities. Yeah. You talked about the fact that the cultural component of the school has always been something you wanted to do from the beginning when you wanted to start it. When you approached uh, the person that um, first approached you about opening up a school, did you talk about that? Was that a selling point for the uh, the district? Uh, was that something that you talked about with them that you wanted to do? Well, there's there are niche communities everywhere, mm-hmm. and... Our opening here coincided with uh, genocide, genocide that was ongoing. You know, our grand opening here was the year anniversary of the of ISIS taking over Nineveh. Mm-hmm. Uh, our grand opening, I gave a speech and I just started breaking down into tears because what we wanted to do was preserve an ethnicity through culture and customs and language that was at that same time being uprooted. Mm-hmm. Even in going back, even, you know, charters having sort of, uh, sort of this broad brush stroke on them, mm-hmm. it was very hard for people, even charter detractors, to not support our program. Mm-hmm. So we even had several anti-charter people that came to out to our, our ribbon-cutting ceremony mm-hmm. because they were just like, look, I'm an anti-charter guy, but I'm not going to be an anti-keys guy mm-hmm. because... We appreciate what you're doing here. We appreciate the services that you're providing. And who are we to tell a persecuted nation? For the, and for the most part, the reason why they're persecuted is because of horrible for, foreign mm-hmm. policy from our country. Who, are, who am I to tell you that you can't operate a program that combines common curriculum mm-hmm. or core curriculum and also adds these nuances, these, these, these other uh, nuances to it? That was the goal and it... There weren't many people that, actually, there weren't many people from outside the community mm. that didn't like it. Yeah. Now there were several people from inside the community that didn't like it. You know, they didn't like my logo, for example. Mm-hmm. They didn't like that I was saying Sudeth and not 
some other words. Um, but we, we forged that. I suppose that in the mindset of the people who are like, I am anti-charter, mm-hmm. but I'm here because this is a good thing you're doing. The other thing I, I thought about was you're helping these students assimilate um, in this new nation yeah. um, that they are now a part of. And I can't see anybody standing in the way of that or saying well, no for to the, that. For the most part, these kids, they have a lot of difficulties transitioning mm-hmm. to a mainstream school. And a lot of times they become a hidden cohort of students. Mm. So if let's, let's say you're talking about a school that has 10% ELL population, mm-hmm. let's say that 10% is a refugee population, mm-hmm. That ten percent, you can can very easily not be looked. Their, their test scores, for example, won't be picked on. They might go year to year without showing any growth in their English proficiency, and it won't affect the the school because mm-hmm. their their overwhelming majority of them are not that population. Mm-hmm. Um, so with us, we wanted to make sure that we were providing the proper services for our students, uh, for all of our students. And we wanted to make sure that they were transitioning appropriately. And we also wanted to make sure that we were accommodating their you know, several, the several different cultural components mm-hmm. to them. You talked about the opening of the school in 2015. Um, there was an article in the Detroit Free Press where you said this same um, sentiment that you just talked about, which is, I'm fully aware that opening of the school coincides with what's happening in the Middle East that must have been bittersweet in so many ways. How do you reconcile between those two feelings of this progress and accomplishment for your community in diaspora, and then at the same time seeing what's happening to your people in the homeland? Because I suppose every accomplishment in diaspora can have that uh, component to it. So how do you reconcile those two? I don't think I've ever reconciled it. I don't think I have. Mm -hmm. I think that as part of the diaspora... All of us are called on to do something. Mm -hmm. Some of us take advantage of the resources that are given to us. Some of us make our own resources. When you're talking about a nation and a nation that's on survival mode, it's incumbent upon every one from that community to do his or her part. I don't think I will ever be able to reconcile what's going on here with what's going on there until we're able to establish something greater than this. I don't know if we ever will. It's, it's so hard to remain optimistic. But when I see what we've been able to do here, and when I see what Australia has been able to do, mm-hmm. it does provide me with some more hope because these are the foundational pieces to everything. The school is the epicenter of the community. At a school, you're with children for seven to eight hours a day. You see them, for the most part, longer than their parents see them mm-hmm. on weekdays. And so when you're able to, to see these kids, and when you're able to instruct them the right way, and when you're able to teach them proper discipline, and when you're able to service them the way that they would be serviced at any other school, while also incorporating something that's very near and dear, then you you start to see something that could blossom into something greater. Mm-hmm. I'm just doing my part. My family's just doing their part. There are several other parts to this, whether it be politics or whether it be uh, greater education, higher education, uh, whether it be podcasts. Like I said, we're, we're just doing our part. Yeah. 
Um, we were talking earlier about Nadia from Canada, who yeah. was a previous guest on the yeah. podcast. Something she talked about uh, in her interview and something I had a chance to talk to her about a few weeks ago was the fact that as as a community, Assyrians have uh, focused on preserving um, the culture. Um, and she talked about it in terms of preservation is for what's in the museums. You mm. preserve a mummy. Mm. Um, and, you know, we were talking earlier about the Ishtar Gate in the cafeteria and the Hammurabi contest. All of those things kind of beckon to bygone days. But this is also a place where young minds are nurtured. Mm-hmm. And clearly that is the not only the future of the community, but the present of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, so... What do you think about that? What do you think about the continuity of the culture versus the preservation? And how do you how do you think the school is doing either one or both of those things? Well, I wouldn't argue with Nadia because <laughs> she's, a, she's a brilliant mind. And uh, she really made an impression on me when I first met her. Mm-hmm. Um, what was about a year, year and a half ago. But schools are similar to museums. Mm-hmm. Schools are... Uh, they're instructional centers, mm-hmm. um, and schools are something that you'll see in several communities, just like you'll see museums in several communities. And when you think of a school, you think of serving kids. So what we did was we said we, we don't just want to serve kids. We also want to preserve culture. Mm-hmm. It's easy to do it with simple things. So making sure that the kids always saw the Ishtar Gate and inside the cafeteria, because they all eat, they all attend the cafe, or they all have to sit in the cafeteria, or making sure that some of our display centers are are always Mesopotamian based, whether it be Babylonian history or Assyrian history. These are small things. Our crest, all the students wear the crest on their uniform, so that's something that they wake up and see every single morning. Mm-hmm. That's something that I'm sure several of them wear outside of school as well. Mm-hmm. So these things are important. Mm-hmm. And this is what we mean when we say the preservation mm-hmm. of things. Uh, but I, of course, I understand where Nadia is coming from. But museums are important. Yeah. Schools are important. Yeah, so. and, and I think th- the reason why I was thinking about that is because I think both of those things are happening at the same time here. You are teaching kids the language and the culture, something they might not learn mm-hmm. at home. <laughs> and so that is a way of ensuring the language continues to go on but you're also teaching them about history because if we don't know our history we are bound to make the same mistakes in the future and yeah. you you learn a lot from history there's a reason why we study it right absolutely yeah. so we just we want to make sure that the kids are getting hit with the same type of sure. vision and the same type of instruction mm-hmm. every day what are your future plans for Keys? Good question. Because it changes. Mm-hmm. My, my, my plans and my goals change. We, we, do, have our, we do have a goal to, to open up in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we suffered some setbacks. It's much more difficult. There's a very heated political climate there. But obviously the goal is to open up several more schools in the future, whether they be in Metro Detroit or whether they be in other areas where we have 
a population that's in dire need. With Chicago, people approached me from there and said, we want something like this. So we, we not only entertained it, but we pursued it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard the same type of sentiment in places like Northern California and, and Phoenix. And, but it's, it's very difficult. It, it's, it's a lot of work. And I would like to, the reason why I said that my goals change is because I, I would like to make sure that we perfect or at least come close to perfection uh, that we can as possible with our sites, our three sites that we have now before we continue on to something else. Mm-hmm. When we do open wherever it is, I want to make sure that they, they become mainstays of those communities. And I want them to, be, I want the schools to be something that the entire community can be extremely proud of. What would you say to people in our community who might be looking at schools for their kids and look at this school and think, well, I would like to enroll my kid in a good school um, and I'm looking at my options. What would you say to those families about why you think Keys is a good school for them? I don't tell. I, every time someone asks me about why they should enroll their kids, all I tell them is come visit. Because whatever I tell you is worthless compared to you walking in the door, especially when my staff is here mm-hmm. and when the kids are here, because there is nothing that will leave a greater impression. My staff is, they're full of remarkable, talented, bright individuals, doctors on the staff. They're all bilingual. My, my teaching staff, full of wonderful, compassionate, nurturing group of, uh, of educators, Obviously, my, my family is so intimately involved. You know, we greet our kids warmly in the mornings and warmly in the afternoon. And uh, when, when families come and they visit, I will get bombarded with hugs walking through the hall. And that leaves the impression. When it comes to schools, I'm pretty much going to be teaching the same thing as other schools. You're going to walk in a classroom and see desks and, and smart boards and all the like. But the difference is the character of the school. It's something that I don't think can be replicated anywhere, in particular because of the demographic dynamic that we have. Several different communities in a very aggressive part of the world uh, that normally don't see eye to eye. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about the eyes of children, it's completely different. It's hugs, it's I love yous, it's high fives. It's a, just a very innocent environment. And that's, that's the best way to explain it. I'm sure this process of opening the school from the beginning till now has had several uh, you know, ups and downs and hardships. I wanted to ask you to talk about a couple of specific moments where you've experienced something with, a, with some of the students or your staff that have made you say this is why we did it. This was worth it for this very moment. Wow, that's putting me on the spot. Last year, two best friends, they were, they were in fifth grade last year. They're sixth graders now. They're, they're best friends. Uh, one of them is Iraqi Muslim, and the other is Iraqi Assyrian. I'm sorry, it wasn't last year. It was during the election. Okay. It was during the campaign season. And the, the Assyrian told the, the Muslim boy that he hopes that Donald Trump became president because he promised that he would kick out Muslim. And so when I heard it, I was very surprised because these were two best friends. I'm talking about they were inseparable. The playground was 
always them playing soccer. Their desks were, ne- were next to each other. So when the boy came to me and told me this, I said, well, let's, you know, let's go have a talk. We sat down and they, before the Assyrian came into the room, he had already started crying. And so I said, you know, come here, buddy. Like, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And he said, because I know I said something very dumb. And the only reason why I said it was because I was mad. And I really don't feel that way about him. I don't want my best friend to leave. That's something that I, I don't know if other schools would be able to deal with the nuances of a community like that. Mm-hmm. It, it took them five seconds to forgive each other and hug, but it took me several weeks to even forget about. And it's one of the first. It's the first thing that you that I re- remember now that you asked me. Just because we have so many difficulties, the community has so many difficulties, whether it be back home, whether it be here. But two boys faced uh, an issue head on. They forgave each other within a matter of seconds. And they're best friends today. I've not had a single issue with them since. <laughs> and it just, it's enlightening. It's refreshing. It was, it was refreshing to see two boys that probably should not have forgiven each other. Or the, the boy, the, the Muslim boy, should, probably should not have forgiven him that quickly. But he did. And it was just re- refreshing to see. I guess the other difficulty or the most difficult thing was the opening was the inundation of messages that I got from people in the community that were asking me why I was pursuing the Lamasu Mm -hmm. on the crest or why I had an Assyrian flag at the ribbon cutting ceremony and it sort of took a toll on me because I was I was very neutral about things there are people in the community that are like no, Assyrian, 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 Assyrian. There are people that are like, no, it's like, you know, let's have a let's have a discussion about it. Let's let's talk about it. You don't have to be a, a jerk. And so I was a very neutral, like even keeled person. I respected my ethnicity, but I sort of also respected other people calling themselves other things. But then I saw like a radical approach to it. And you know, between the messages, the fake Facebook pages that were going up. It was it was a very difficult time because I was dealing with the opening of a school. I had just proposed to my fiance, and I'm I saw this backlash from a community that I had served for so long, and so it was tough. All it did is it hardened my resolve about making sure everyone knew what the what the proper terms and 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 how important semantic semantics are and things like that. So those were I guess the two things that that stick out for me. In terms of struggle. Mm -hmm. You've always been very vocal about identifying as an Assyrian. Has that always been the case for you? No. I was... I I knew very little. I was very ignorant of the history. Mm. Um, Up until 2014. Very ignorant. After that, just before... Actually, it it started just before ISIS's invasion. Um, But it it continued. And then I I did a lot of, of researching and reading... Uh, in the fall of 2014 and it's continued till now i will whenever i i can get my hands on something or whenever i could identify something online it's i i call it educational malpractice Mm -hmm. and because i operate schools this is something that's near and dear to me just like a doctor has uh, medical malpractice and um so 
when I see someone that is knowingly spreading false history or using, you know, semantics to for for his or her benefit or self-interest, it's something that I will always speak out on. And also knowing that it's contributed to such a a rough period, it's contributed to sort of our our weakness. It's propelled our weaknesses as opposed to advanced our successes. It's it's something that I'll continue to do. I try not to be a jerk about it, but it's very difficult. It's extremely difficult when you know that people are usurping something like a language mm-hmm. and usurping uh, such a rich culture and, and, and history for their benefit. I think it's important for everyone to do. It's just, how do you do it? Because you don't want to turn people off. But at the same time, it's hard to be patient. What would you say to anyone listening to the podcast as an idea to make something happen that would serve the community, but also um, make the community known to the outside world, but is too afraid to pursue it um, or is doesn't think they're good enough to start something like a school or anything like that. What would your advice be to those people? Look at other people in the community. Read about them. I can't recall which Facebook page it was that did a, a list of powerful Assyrian women. Mm-hmm. Look at that. Go read that list. It's empowering. It's something that you'll be proud of. Call me. Call people in the community that you think have done something that's beneficial to the community. And most of the time, he or she is going to help you out. I've never turned down anyone that's called me, especially someone from the community that's called me and said, I need help with something. That'll never be me. That'll never be other people that want to see progression in the community. Uh, Reach out. You'll not only get advice, but most of the time you'll get resources and you'll get encouragement. There are many to choose from because we are a very, very polished worldwide group of people. Uh, I've met so many new people over the last few years and I I couldn't believe what we've achieved. It's nice to see. It's also hard to see because you see all these achievements and then there's still so many. We're just so, so behind on so many things. But it's it's not hard to identify someone and to pick apart his or her brain by just sending them an email or shooting them a phone call. Well, thank you, Nathan. I appreciate you talking to me today. I know it's been a long day for you, but I, it was not really nice talking. A little hungry, but yeah. <laughs> I had a very good time, and um, I, I hope this podcast does well. Thank you. Uh, I, I'd like to see this continue on for for a long time. And,